Hi, my name is Lauren Kay, and welcome to The Games That Made Me. We started this podcast to look at the lives and stories of gaming and esports professionals by taking a look at the games of their past and how they shaped their futures. Today, we are joined by Laura Kate Dale. Laura is many things, including author, accessibility and queer representation critic, consultant, a video game critic, a streamer, and a content creator. And you can follow her on Twitter at Laura K. Buzz for all the other things that she does. I was so excited to have Laura on the show because she's been such a staple in the games industry. Her queer representation, autism representation, she's fought for it all. And it's so exciting to have her on to pick her brain about all of these games that really helped shape who she is. A lot of our journeys into games is like really varied. I mean, we have all different ways in which we sort of get into this sort of beautiful experience of playing games. Pokemon, I think, was something that was particularly important to you when you were a child. Sort of, how did that start? Yeah, so I grew up right at the perfect time for Pokemon to be hitting as that big global phenomenon. When Pokemon Red and Blue dropped, I was just old enough to be able to like read and follow a JRPG. Um, but I struggled with socializing as a child. Um, I'm autistic and growing up, I really didn't know how to engage with other people. I found communication really difficult and Pokemon was one of the most important social interaction tools I had growing up. Um, as a series, Pokemon has since its inception been about collecting, cataloging, uh, all sorts of like uh, complex information about how these creatures work, where you can find them, how they level up. And I just happened to be lucky that that, in that obsessive interest happened to be something that everyone around me was, was getting very interested in. And it was really nice to have a social safety net topic as mm. a awkward uh, child that didn't really know how to talk to people. Being able to know useful information that my my peers found helpful gave me an excuse to talk to people and something that I knew if I was struggling to keep a conversation going was a topic that I shared with them uh, really helped me to feel safer talking to people. Yeah, like finding that thing that's really universal and something that you can provide benefit to the, like, it is kind of like that sort of scientific element of the conversation and of connection with people. And um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's fantastic because, you know, there's so many things when you have autism where like collecting things is like a really big thing of that. Yes. Having it virtually in your pocket exactly. is much safer, much happier, yeah. much... <laughs> Uh, I found that be that children growing up were a lot less interested in all of the facts I knew about trains, which I know is a real oh, stereotype trains. for autism. Yeah. But like, Pokemon was just at that intersection of, oh, I, I shouldn't have to be useful for people to want to socialize with me. But mm. the fact was, my knowing what level some Pokemon was going to learn whatever move or how to evolve a Pokemon that needed an evolution stone was something that provided utility and 
that was a foot in the door. And like sometimes that's all you need is just something to get conversations started when you don't know how else to do that. Oh yeah, that's so that's so sweet though. Um, and you know, do you feel that Pokemon still helps you to this day to connect with everybody? It, it really does, but in different ways, mm. I think. Um, I feel a lot more comfortable uh, initiating conversations with people than I used to, uh, but I've gotten really into Pokemon like in the last like five or so years, specifically around shiny hunting. Um, mm. I got into shiny hunting in Pokemon. Um, I'd always sort of known it was a thing, but I was at a press event, a review event for Pokemon Let's Go Pikachu and Eevee. Uh, when that game was coming out and it was the first pokemon game that had shiny pokemon visible in the overworld and i was a couple of hours into this game at an event where other people were playing it and i saw this shiny zubat just flying around mount moon sparkling and green and i'd never cared about zubat as a pokemon before until that moment but i kept that zubat on my team all the way to the elite four um really grew to love a pokemon i'd previously not really cared about mm. and that experience of like something i a series i'd loved for years that suddenly i was appreciating in a different way really stuck with me and i got very into shiny hunting uh specifically because it met a need as a as an autistic person of i love collecting and cataloging all these pokemon but it's not a hugely time consuming process to just catch all the new pokemon in a new game mm. i wanted more projects to obsessively do the same thing over and over and to keep working on that collection and trying to get a rare one in 4,000 variant of every single Pokemon that's ever existed <laughs> yeah. meant that like, yeah, I'm, I'm never going to run out of Pokemon to play Not for a long time, at least. Um, yeah. Endless content. Exactly. And it was endless stuff to be doing. It was endless excuses to be streaming, playing the game, which gave mm. me more excuses to be talking about Pokemon with people who were watching who also enjoyed it and having something that I could really focus on doing long term that gave me an excuse to have those Pokemon related conversations mm. outside of like the few weeks where a new Pokemon's released mm. was really feels like a continuation of what I enjoyed about Pokemon right at the start that it's an excuse for me to connect with people. It's almost like a safety like it's it's you feel a safety in the fact that it's not ending because it just has yeah. that sort of lovely unending connection to it. Exactly. Like I, it's a bit of an autism stereotype, but I struggle with, I struggle with change. I struggle with things being different and there is something nice and calming about like, I, I know it's a complaint people have about Pokemon as a series that it hasn't really changed very much in the 20 plus years since it originally started. Mm. But to me, there's something very, that feels very safe and very at home about variation after variation on something that I already enjoy and getting to just change just enough that it still feels familiar and give myself excuses to spend as much time in those worlds as possible. Mm. Um, like most of the Pokemon games on Switch I've put about a thousand hours into each each new pair of games that's come out like i that is my one series that i've definitely played more than any other video game series i think ever that's amazing though and like which one uh which one do you think is like your favorite one to live in oh i 
recognize that it has a lot of problems, but I've really been enjoying Scarlet and Violet recently. Mm. Um, I know that they are technically slightly buggy and messy games and that like there are definitely complaints that could be had about them, but I really just like being able to exist in this big open space with basically no no loads, nothing to stop that's just, here's a world, go inhabit a space <laughs> and it's as someone that grew up with like the Pokemon anime existing, presenting like the world of Pokemon as this big expansive space. It is the most that this uh, the series of games, I think, has ever felt like it's captured that feeling of just, there is a big world and the Pokemon are just out there, go explore. Yeah, no, definitely. Because like, I've actually not explored much of Violet and Scarlet. I've wanted to. Yeah. Um, is it, does it have those like really terrifying Pokemon that Ar Arceus had? Uh, it doesn't have the big angry Thank ones. Thank God. That, <laughs> yes, the ones that would sort of charge you and physically knock you the trainer out. Yeah, because like, I was play trying to play it with my daughters and I was just like, I don't know if this game is accessible for you because it's just like you, you it's giving you panic attacks because of these big <laughs> red eyed Pokemon that are going to chase you. Yeah, they're a little intimidating. Um, I, I do think Scott, uh, I do think uh, Legends Arceus is fantastic. Generally, though. it is. It's, uh, I one thing that I do love about Legends Arceus over Scarlet and Violet is I like that when shiny Pokemon appear, there's a little sparkle sound and a little visual Aww. animation, so that you know there's a shiny. And yeah. they took that away in Scarlet and Violet. I'm like, oh, no, no. Give, give me back the little sparkle sound, because otherwise I will just be constantly terrified I've missed a shiny just out of you. Right, because there's probably some Pokemon that like it doesn't, it's ambiguous oh, as to whether or not. There are definitely some of those. Uh, there is one in Scarlet and Violet called Tandemouse, mm. which is just two little mice wearing like a shirt and trousers. <laughs> Um, and the shiny version, it, it goes from being, I think, a white shirt and trousers to a slightly cream, just oh, a no. very slight cream. But these are tiny little Pokemon oh, that are scaled gosh. down in the grass. It is so impossible to tell yeah. when a shiny is there. So it just literally could be walking right past a shiny ten tandem yeah. tandem uh, tandem there's two tandem. of them tandem oh they're so cute though <laughs> um but yeah and i mean i we would be we would it would be criminal for us to not mention who are your favorite starter pokemon oh favorite starter pokemon um i generally in most generations have always liked the fire type starters cute. um in basically every generation up until scarlet and violet i always went with the fire starter of whichever generation torchic in particular i really love um <laughs> i like the the sort of pathway from tiny little adorable uh baby chick through to just karate chicken i guess <laughs> yeah. um Scarlet and Violet is the first generation where my favorite starter was the water type. I really Aww. liked Quaxley, the little, this little duck. Little that, Donald Duck. Yeah, that grows up into a flamenco dancer <laughs> uh, with very powerful kicks. <laughs> yeah, I think that's like the funniest thing watching all the Star and Pokemon is just, yeah, like some of them, they really go from zero to just like, what the heck gladiator monster like <laughs> it's just insane some of them the the one i think of most for that is uh litten which mm. starts as just adorable little kitten and it is eventually the most muscular wrestler <laughs> you've ever seen i'm like <laughs> you would just you would just a cat there was nothing wrestler about you i know 
But but alas, you just did not know its true potential until it was how, too late. How did I not how did I not look at this kitten and go, yes, you will obviously become a wrestler. That's the natural progression for you. I think it's I think it's beautiful your connection with Pokemon, and I think it is it is something that is really really um, like generational wise has has been so monumental for all of us. I mean, I'm sharing Let's Go Pikachu with my girls now, which has just been amazing. Yeah, it's it's really lovely that it has stood the test of time. And I know that there are people who are like, oh, it's gotten stale and it's not really changed a huge amount. But I think that the core experience that they came up with in the 90s really was quite progressive in what it was going for and has held up really well. And I think that like the magic of just, there's all these wondrous creatures out there, go find the ones that are your favorite and build those connections, I think still holds up. For the games that you've been playing recently as well, uh, one that you've really sort of latched onto is Sayonara Wild Hearts. Oh, I love Sayonara Wild Hearts so much. It is. <laughs> I. Over the years, I've had lots of like, oh, I don't know what I would say my favorite game is. I would always be like, oh, it depends when you ask me. Sayonara Wild Hearts has like stuck as my favorite game since I played it. It, mm. it has been a consistent answer to that question. So how were you like first introduced to it? Was it just that it was a game that you were covering or? So Sayonara Wild Hearts, I'd seen come up in a bunch of indie focused uh sort of e3 style presentations it had gotten some highlights in a few just live streams showing off trailers for upcoming games i think one of the console manufacturers um might have had some trailers like i think it was like some of the playstation state of directs had some trailers for it and it was very colorful had some great music in the trailers and pitched itself as being a playable uh pop music album mm. and i was like the visual style and the music are really catchy. And every time I see this, it doesn't look or sound like anything I've played before. So I was actively looking forward to it before it came out without really knowing exactly what to expect. But I played it through in a single sitting and just was sold on it entirely. Oh my gosh, yeah. Like, I, I've been sold on it too. Like, it's just, the music is phenomenal. The gameplay is like, it's just so, it just looks so fun. And um, I know, like, from a sort of, like, queer perspective, you had quite a, like, connection with it as well, didn't you? I'm a big believer that video games could do with being less afraid of being short, contained experiences. You see mm -hmm. a lot of people complaining online when, you know, oh, this game cost X amount and it's only X length. But I think that Sayonara Wild Hearts is a real testament of what you can do with a game. Being short and concise and like really focused on what it's trying to tell narratively. Um, there are very few video games that I think really focus on female experiences and particularly queer female experiences. It's not to say that there are not video games with female leads, but I think a lot of video games with female leads sort of by design to not sort of uh, alienate male players who may not want to focus on femininity a lot mm. of games with female characters will sort of make the identity of the character being female sort of ancillary to their plot mm. and particularly like even more so i think with with a lot of uh games that have queer uh sort of queer leads but sayonara wild hearts i think really spoke to me in terms of 
being a story about coming to terms with queer identity and exploring what it means to be a queer woman. Um, as a, a queer trans woman, I did a lot of my sort of exploring of self in terms of what it meant for me to be female and to be queer as an adult. Mm. And it's one of those things where when you go through some of that self-exploration as an adult rather than sort of alongside your peers when they're growing up, that it can feel a little isolating. Like you are having to learn a lot of things about yourself in isolation without a lot of answers. And the way that Sayonara Wild Hearts is a story about being uncertain and unfamiliar in queer feminine identity and having the difficulties that come with making that journey to, you know, understanding who you are, I think really resonated. And the fact that it was able to do so in maybe an hour to an hour and a half with a soundtrack that's really catchy <laughs> was a wonderful thing. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. But yeah, no, I think that that's something that resonates with, definitely resonates with a lot of people who are going through transitioning when they're um, when they're an adult. It's like, you basically have to live your entire sort of first part of your life over again and relearn everything and how to express yourself because you've been essentially, not to use the term, but I think it works quite well here, masking, right? Yeah. Like it's essentially is like masking before. And um, that's really lovely that you found that in Sayonara Wild Hearts. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of the way that Sayonara Wild Hearts is structured in terms of uh, it sort of journeys through various uh, different distinct types of feminine subculture, I think is something that really stuck with me in that sense of like, I remember in early transition having having to have, I, I guess you would call it the awkward teen phase of finding your style, for example, mm. as an adult when it's sort of expected that you will have understood what fashion works for you and, and doesn't and that sort of experimentation with how do I want to present myself? How do I want to be seen? Who am I presenting myself to the world as is something that requires playing around in that space of, uh, there are different kinds of person, people I could be. And I have to learn that just through trial and error. I think some of that like comes across in the sort of tone of how this game goes through exploration of different kinds of identity. And um, I mean, you've also like said that it's pretty much one of your favorite games of all time. Like what about this game has like really made it rate you rate so highly <laughs> after like all of the games that you've played in your career? As I, as I said, I, I like that this game is as short and concise as it is. I think that um, I'm a big appreciator of when a video game has uh knows how many ideas it has it wants to experiment with and doesn't try and stretch itself out beyond whatever set of ideas it has um there was a game that uh i played a while back called uh what the golf and this is a slightly strange <laughs> comparison what the golf. But oh my god what, what the golf i think is is very similar in that sense of uh lots and lots of creative ideas and as soon as like the developers like okay i've done everything i have to do with that idea just move on and don't feel the need to stretch it out and i think like that's part of what i love about sayonara wild hearts is that it's like here is a concept we're maybe gonna do it for like two or three songs and then we move on to something else and keep that creative pace and energy going yeah uh alongside 
uh, a soundtrack that I think stands alone without the game as a fantastic set of music, but is elevated by interactivity. Um, I really wish we had more interactive music video video games to point to because I love music generally. I, I have always found a lot of emotional connection with music and I think that video games by the nature of being interactive uh, foster the idea of feeling engaged with what you're uh, what you're engaging with. Mm. And for me that combination of listening to music that has lyrics that I'm emotionally invested in while playing something that is reinforcing the themes of those lyrics and is uh, helping to reinforce like the swells and the pacing of the music by how the gameplay sort of ebbs and flows along with it really made me appreciate that music more than I might have done in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm someone that doesn't listen to albums as much as I would like to. I do a lot of like listening to isolated pieces of music, just you know, one track off an album or whatever. Mm-hmm. But by the nature of this being a consistent story told, you know, in an hour, hour and a half, it sort of forces me to do that thing I don't do often enough of listen to a set of music as a complete piece of work. And I think that that interactivity really helps make that happen. On top of just, it's a beautiful queer love story that that I find very sweet and really enjoy yeah we just need those types of games like those types of games need to be celebrated because of just they it's it it offers the experience that you want and it's just it just is yeah sometimes a game can just be its own little complete package and there is nothing i would add to or change about that game it is it is perfect the way it is, and I appreciate it being short enough that every now and then I can go, I'm just going to sit and replay the whole thing. Yeah. And that's not a huge time commitment to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not like Pokemon. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and also, I mean, The Last of Us is something that really, um, really had a big impact on your career. Um, when you got the code to review The Last of Us 2... Um, I know you said you were feeling kind of like uninspired at that time. Um, do you want to talk a bit about how The Last of Us yeah. 2 like sort of brought you into accessibility? Yeah, so 2020 was an interesting year for me making content about video games in that the prior few years of video game news had been pretty, pretty depressing in places. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, as someone that like covers video game news on a weekly basis the number of like mounting and growing stories that exist of video game developers and publishers treating their workers poorly uh harassment being buried within companies i was feeling pretty disillusioned with games uh you know i love video games as an art form but i don't always love the things that go into them being made and i wanted to feel like i could do something to help make the art form I love better. And at the start of that year, I made what at the time was a one-off video that was uh, about video game accessibility and accessibility standards that really were a bit 
overdue in being standards in this industry. Mm. Uh, at the time, I was talking about things like making sure that subtitles in exist and are of a certain size and have a background behind them, making sure colorblind modes existed. Very basic things that even, you know, three years ago were overdue being standardized. A couple of months after that, I was thinking back on that video going, I really think that that kind of discussion needs to be done more. And I started making weekly content about accessibility. And I started doing so at, I couldn't really have picked a better time to jump into video game accessibility as a space. Because maybe a couple of months after I started making these videos, we saw the release of The Last of Us 2, which undoubtedly set an incredibly high benchmark for what video games as a medium could be doing to help disabled players play video games. Um, that game brought together a lot of best practices that we'd seen dotted around the industry for years, but never really brought together into a single cohesive experience mm. uh, in terms of things like making sure good uh, good subtitle integration, uh, difficult uh, customizable difficulty that's more than just easy, medium, hard. Uh, but it also really pushed the industry forward in a lot of ways. It introduced things like high contrast mode, where the game is sort of all set grayscale except for visually important information being made sort of bright and colorful. It uh, really pushed forward on things like accessibility presets and recognizing common categories of disability and the ways that we can lump a lot of sort of tools together to help specific groups of people. It is one of the first big AAA video games that made a push to be playable start to finish by sightless players. Uh, as someone who was just starting to talk about accessibility as a disabled gamer a, a few months prior, it gave me a lot of hope that it wasn't futile mm. to be asking for better from the industry because it became this thing I could point to and say, there is one game that might not be perfect, but if every game could be doing what The Last of Us 2 is doing, our industry would be most of the way there to being accessible for disabled players. And having this one easy title to point to and go, if you could reach this benchmark, you'd be basically there, mm. was a really good sign that the industry was ready for the kind of conversations that I wanted to be having at the time. It really did uh, sort of set the bar very high for what is possible. And a lot of the things it did, as I said, weren't necessarily things that hadn't been done before, but for a game to take all those things and do them all at once and to make a sort of consistent experience from it really did set expectations. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think it is worth noting, yeah, just how much things have changed in the last, say, three years or so since then. I think largely as a result of developers seeing the level of praise that was uh, received for doing this. Mm -hmm. um, in If you look at video games today in terms of accessibility, two of the three main console manufacturers have either released or are releasing their own accessibility controllers. Um, uh, both the PlayStation and Microsoft stores now have accessibility tags so that you can go on their digital stores and see what accessibility settings exist for a game before you purchase it. Uh, PlayStation has basically standardized a lot of the things from The Last of Us 2 across most of their first-party lineup. We're not perfectly where we need to be, but we are taking leaps and bounds forward uh, every year, and it doesn't 
seem like that is slowing down. And that's the main thing I'm really excited about, is that it wasn't a flash-in-the-pan moment where The Last of Us 2 came out and received a lot of praise and then was forgotten about. It does seem to have really kick-started this being something the industry takes seriously. Mm. Oh, completely. And like with that in mind as well, like I know someone like Tara Volker is doing a lot mm. of work with um, creating like sort of uh, guidelines for essentially checklists for when the yeah. development is going on of like where, what things you should have in place for accessibility. Um, but is there anywhere that you, that you particularly want to see some light shine on for the future? I really hope that we see some steps forward in terms of uh, audio descriptions for mm. video games. Uh, speaking of The Last of Us, the remake of The Last of Us Part 1 dipped its toes a little bit in having audio descriptions uh, for blind players. As I said, The Last of Us 2 is playable start to finish by sightless players, but a lot of the narrative in that game was missed entirely because... Uh, cutscenes, you could hear the dialogue that was being said, but not you know, any descriptions of where characters were, what the setting was. But there are indie games uh, like the recently released uh, Brock the Investigator, which is about an alligator investigator. Oh my god, I love uh, That had really good, robust uh, audio descriptions the entire way through. Every new environment, every character, every scene, all of it was like perfectly audio described. Uh, and I really hope that, like, that is something we see more of. Mm -hmm. um, I think, like, the big thing going forward is wanting to see standardization. Um, yeah. Wanting to see this industry move towards the idea of we know what works and we know what's helpful. There are so many disabled critics out there who can give you those bullet-pointed lists of, uh, you know, I'm a blind gamer or a gamer with motor control disabilities, uh, these are the things that are helpful to me. These are the games that are good reference points for what would help me. It's not an excuse anymore not knowing how to mm. make your game accessible. And when you look at the scale of budgets that some of these big AAA games are working with, it really feels like making the effort to follow those best practices consistently is the way forward to like really see change. Moving on to To The Moon... So this seems like a very, very intense game, particularly for you. I mean, can you tell me a bit about like the storyline of the game, just um, for those of who don't necessarily yeah. know what it's about? Uh, so on the surface, To the Moon is a sort of top-down pixel art uh, game about a pair of scientists in a near-future world uh, whose job is to go to people who are near death and rewrite their memories um basically if someone wants to remember their life differently to how it actually turned out they will facilitate that by going back through someone's memories and tweaking a little bit how their life played out and on the surface it is a game about a man who doesn't remember why he wants this but he wants to remember having gone to the moon in his life and as these people dig further and further back in his memories it becomes less and less a story about him and more and more a story about uh, a couple of autistic women in his life and the difficulties uh, in communication that sometimes arise between autistic people and the non-autistic people in their lives. Mm. Yeah, it's like level of understanding between the two and the frustration 
that can sometimes manifest. Yes, the 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 difficulty that can sometimes come from two people essentially speaking a different language in terms of uh, communication styles and uh, if the divide in communication styles isn't sort of met both ways, yeah. how it can be difficult to make sure that someone's needs are met. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, definitely. And, you know, um, one of the biggest conversations that happens or one of the things that happens in this game a lot is um, this idea of masking, mm. um, which it can be like a very, very intense thing. I mean, you know, if you want to explain a bit about what masking is um, yes. particularly, but it's something that's very yeah. exhausting Indeed. for those who are autistic. Yes. So, um, I, as I said, I'm autistic and I wasn't diagnosed autistic until adulthood. And particularly when you are living undiagnosed as an autistic person, uh, masking is the act of trying to suppress your own autistic behaviors in order to survive in a world that is unforgiving to people who are acting quote unquote different. Mm -hmm. Um, that can take the form of trying to suppress uh, actions like stimming, which is uh, repetitive physical behaviors that are done to have something consistent and predictable to focus on, through to uh, trying to regulate uh, behavior around, uh, around language, basically trying to shave off the parts of yourself that are not correct in a non-autistic society and mm -hmm. trying to present outwardly normal, uh, quote unquote, at the expense of a lot of co uh, constant effort and energy being expended. Mm. Um, and yeah, To the Moon definitely deals with this a lot. And one of the reasons that I, I sort of put this down on my list of games that uh, that, that made me is that there are very few stories about autism, uh, not just in video games, but generally, that do a few of the things that To The Moon does. Mm. Um, it's very rare we see stories about autistic women. Um, a lot of 90s bad practice oh. uh, psychology sort of labeled autism as a boy's disease that yeah. uh, meant that for a very long time we, you know, underdiagnosed uh, women with autism, but also underrepresented them in media depictions. Uh, a lot of media depictions of autism will only have one autistic character who is expected to portray the entire spectrum of uh, ways that autism can manifest. And To the Moon, I think, does a really good job of both not only showing a woman with autism, but two women with autism who had very different lived experiences and both had different things that they benefited from and different things they struggled with. Um, the game centers on one character who was diagnosed young and had support tools and was given a bit more freedom to not have to shave those parts off of herself, but also didn't have to force herself to learn those those tools that uh, some people who are diagnosed later in life have to learn. Mm. And it's really interesting seeing these conversations around things like when you're someone who has had to mask to survive without a diagnosis, 
the difficulty of giving yourself space to understand who you are underneath the performance that society has made you present. Feeling jealous of people who never never masked and knowing that like that is a double-edged sword because of the societal consequences that unmasked autistic people you know are often presented with and it just presents this really interesting conversation that doesn't present either lived experience of autism as inherently facing more or less challenges but recognizing that both sides have things that the other wishes they had and that yeah. it's really that both are people who are just really struggling and could do with more support from the people around them oh that's so beautiful and i know like a lot of people like this game hits you hard there's some really wonderful metaphor use in this game that really stuck with me um in in particular there's a conversation sort of uh later in the game about uh one of these autistic characters feeling like she's a lighthouse shining her light out into the world and there's not anyone shining their their lights back and <sighs> just wanting to see some some message in return no matter how far of a distance it's coming from and a lot of those things were really meaningful to see verbalized because so often Media about autistic people is so often made for non-autistic audiences from an outside perspective and so rarely deals with verbalizing the internal lived experience of being someone autistic that just wants to make those emotional connections with people mm. and just slowing down and letting these characters talk about how, how they feel rather than just having them be a list of uh symptoms they are doing shouldn't have been as as revolutionary as it was to see in i think it was like 2012 that it came out mm -hmm. but it really i i couldn't think of anything else at the time that had ever had those conversations the media presents it as just juliet lewis in the other sister you know like that is yes. that is essentially what they do and it's just yeah. like that isn't it's yeah autism is so often shown only as either an inconvenience other people are so brave for living with <laughs> or as a superpower that comes with a little bit of quirkiness yeah or as oh a terrible way to live oh if only you could could be normal like everyone else and yeah. to show these people living lives and specifically like living lives with loving partners mm. that they might have some difficulties with but at the end of the day they're just searching for connection like everyone mm. was really it really stuck with me oh my gosh yeah yeah i'm getting for <laughs> like it's it's really really gorgeous and then um you know the last game that we sort of want to talk about today is tell me why which yes. of course is a, another one from don't nod which like i mean come on like their games have just been so so revolutionary for a lot of reasons but what was what was it in particular from tell me why that really captured you I've always loved Don't Nod's games. I'm a big fan of your sort of uh, choose-your-own-adventure uh, style stories where you sort of branch the narrative a little bit, but Tell Me Why was really special, um, largely because of the ways that uh, the game presented its uh, lead character, Tyler, who is a trans man. Um, over the years, we've had little bits of trans representation in video games, and... 
usually they all come with caveats mm-hmm. um from uh mass effect andromeda introducing a trans character just for her to dead name herself in the first conversation <laughs> you have with her to uh the missing jj mcfield and the island of memories which is a wonderful game in isolation but is kind of let down by its developers interviews and other work being really not great yeah um it's rare to find a piece of media like a big budget video game that feels like it really understands the trans community and i think that what tell me why does really well is it has lots and lots of little details that um feel very true to trans lived experience in a way that I think the best way to put it is sometimes when you play a piece of media with a trans character who's been written by people who aren't trans it will feel like the only traits this trans character represents are things that you could infer from reading a gender dysphoria diagnostic list of symptoms uh whereas tell me why I had a lot of little details that felt very lived in um one that comes to mind quickly is uh at some point in this game you find tyler's uh diary from when he was growing up when he was much younger and i braced myself for impact when i saw that (laughs) i was like oh if this game's gonna grossly like use an excuse to to dead name this character from before they transitioned this would be it yeah but what the game did that was really lovely was every time that like um they, they they were referred to in the diary it was a different slightly masculine coded name because they'd spent their childhood trying to find a name that fit and it like this sort of trying to find something that fits that is masculine but not so masculine that it's gonna like stand out if a parent reads it was like very just felt very true to life Mm. um but beyond that tell me why uh it, it avoids a lot of the tropes of uh even even with flashbacks existing um never uh, never dead naming the character uh not misgendering them unnecessarily um allowing them to have the option of a romance with a character that is like never about the fact they're trans they just get to have a romantic interest and that's okay that so much of their story is about things other than their transness is just really refreshing and like it's certainly not the first video game to exist with a with a with a good trans character there's been a lot of wonderful stuff uh done in the indie scene over the years mm-hmm. by trans creators but in terms of like big budget marketed by console manufacturers like this was showing up in like xbox uh specific presentations seeing something like that really lean into having a trans protagonist and get things correct felt like a really big moment of stepping forward for the industry and was really reassuring um Mm -hmm. as someone that is so constantly frustrated with so many games getting things wrong this felt like one i could point to and go we've got a good one now yeah yeah because it is that thing it's the same with it's it's similar to the spectrum sort of experience of just like just time and time again being let down by people who just will as you say use the textbook example of what what yes. this kind of experience is and not actually let let people who come from these experiences speak yes and using that as an impetus to just sort of create humans instead of just archetypes yes. yeah it it 
it's about having characters that feel like they are that they get to exist as people beyond just these are the list of bullet points <laughs> that if we do these it will say trans character yeah. or if we do these things it will say autistic character and making them individuals who have their own specific personalities that you know might be influenced in places by their identity but is not defined by it yeah. and that has those little touches that you know an outside audience might not pick up on but someone who is personally impacted can go that feels real to mm. what i went through and like that that little bit of additional detail and context can make characters feel all the more personally engaging oh that's so lovely and you know sort of closing us out we would have to talk about some of your books because you've <laughs> written some amazing i mean mario's butt um <laughs> not to bring it. oh yes yes a series of gaming butt critiques um let's talk let's start with that one sort of like how did this how did mario's butt so come into play things i learned from mario's butt is definitely one of the weirder projects i've worked on <laughs> in my time um so the story of this book goes back about a decade when I was first like full-time writing about video games. Um, I had been working like a fairly generic supermarket job and uh, that ended pretty abruptly. And I was like, okay, I'm going to take the dive and I'm going to try and make video games my full-time job. I set up a Patreon and was like, I'll give myself a couple of weeks and if I can get that Patreon to the price amount it would need to be, for me to survive on, to scrape by, I'll go for this. And if, if after a couple of weeks I can't do that, I'll find a regular job again. So I went on Twitter <laughs> and was like, I need to hit a certain threshold of patrons to, to make this work. Is there anything I could write about that if I did, you'd give me a dollar a month? Mm. And I don't remember who it was, but someone tweeted back to me, review video game character butts and i retweeted <laughs> it as a joke i was like oh that's a silly idea and like 50 people tweeted me back saying yeah i'll give you a dollar if you do that oh my god i was like okay um so i try i was like if i'm gonna do this silly idea i want to find an approach to it that feels um that feels worthwhile that feels like i'm doing something substantial with it and the approach i came to was let's take this really seriously. Mm. Like, let's go and find actual interesting information, be it about the nature of character model design or plot points that are relevant, and show that, like, insignificant details about characters are often a lot more important than they seem. Like, it doesn't have to be butts, but we picked butts. Um, you can pick any aspect of a character and think about why did the designer design that aspect of their design the way they did? Mm. What can we learn from the choices that human beings made about how to design these characters? Because somebody had to yeah. make that decision. Well, that's the thing. No aspect of a video game character is accidental. Mm. And as soon as you stop and go, someone made a deliberate choice for that butt to be the way it is, <laughs> yeah. you start unraveling that there are a lot of interesting things to learn. Um, <laughs> And this started as a series of silly YouTube videos. And uh, a couple of years later, I contacted a publisher and said, I'd love to make this a book. And they didn't say no. 
And Yay! then I and then I kept asking people to contribute to it, and no one said no. And that's how that book happened. No one told me I couldn't. Yes, <laughs> and that's like the beautiful thing, though. Like I think you know, sort of the overarching thing that we with, that we've been talking about, like despite its sort of hardships and and some disappointments over the years, like it's those glimmers of joy that really keep you coming back into the games industry <laughs> and like having hope for it. Well, that's that's it like I spoke to a lot of um people in the games industry who contributed sections to that book and uh, after it happened about like why was it that you said yes to this silly idea and a lot of them their response basically boiled down to this medium it's sometimes easy to forget why we love talking about games in the first place and having an excuse to be a bit silly and a bit nonsensical but also, I did some research and I found out some things, and I fe <laughs> I feel like I did some work and no found a thing no one's talked about. That weird middle ground seemed to uh, get some people excited to talk about about video games. And even if it's because of butts, if you find a thing that makes you excited to talk about a video game character, capitalize on that. Enjoy the fact that you're having fun talking about games. Yeah, no, definitely. That's a, it's absolutely incredible. <laughs> And, you know, um, sort of closing us out, I just want to sort of talk a bit about what you might be working on now. Uh, so things I'm working on now, I've got a lot of uh, uh, a lot of other books that have come out and are in, in the works. I've got one uh, coming out later this year about autistic people's uh, stories of autistic joy, trying to paint a, a sort of uh, portrait of different ways that autistic people's joy can look. Um, I am still putting out weekly episodes of Access Ability over on youtube.com slash Laura K Buzz, talking about how we can keep pushing forward in video game accessibility. Uh, I do a bunch of podcasts, including Podquisition, where I talk about uh, video games I've been playing every week. Uh, I Twitch stream Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Uh, all sorts of stuff. If you search Laura K Buzz, you'll find <laughs> way too many things that I'm doing at any given moment. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. But yes, no, I, this has been absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for sharing all of your amazing insight and all of your amazing stories as well. Thank you for having me. This has been lovely. Oh. <laughs>